Welcome to Part of the Family from South Charleston First Church of the Nazarene in South Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, I'm Chris Riggs, one of the staff pastors here at SC First. In today's episode, we'll share the message from our Sunday morning service on January 23rd. Then Greg Behaler, Michael Lowe, and I will take a few more minutes to dig even deeper into the message. Just by listening in, even if you've never joined us in person or online, well, you're part of the family too. This past Sunday, Paul Neal filled in for Pastor Kent with a message based out of the book of Esther. If you've already listened to or watched the message, you can skip forward about 30 minutes for our discussion of the sermon. Now, without further ado, let's listen to the message. Um, I don't know what to think from last week to this week. This time last week, my wife Mindy and I were filling in in Children's Church for Pastor Dana and Lisa. And then as of Tuesday morning, here I I found out I would be filling in for Pastor Kent this morning. Um, I don't think it's a promotion. Um, But... As long as you keep your hands to yourself and you took most of your restroom breaks beforehand, I think we're good. So um, here's my question. Have you ever heard of John C. Calhoun? He was an American statesman and political figure from South Carolina, and he held many important governmental positions. He's a good-looking fella, and he has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon today. But those are the first two lines of the message Pastor Kent was going to preach this morning, and Presumably, we'll be preaching next Sunday morning, so I just wanted to get his heart rate up while he's at home recovering. Um, So you'll have to wait till next week to find out a little more about John C. Calhoun. We do miss our pastor when he's not here, and we're looking forward to having him back with us in just a couple of days. So, and I promise the message I'm going to bring you this morning was not plagiarized from Pastor Kent or from anyone else. It's an original. And here's how it starts. I have come to believe something during the years of my relationship with Jesus. I have come to believe that God is a God who not only guides us through processes, I would go so far as to say I've come to believe that it's the primary way he works in us and in our world. He loves process. Now, he is a God of miracles, yes, but sometimes I think our view of what a miracle is is a little bit skewed. We can have this perception of a miracle being like a really good magic trick. Um, There's a stage illusion with a big flash of light, and instantaneously there's a helicopter on stage. It's one of those things. But when we look at the miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth, many of them involved a process. It often didn't happen instantaneously. For instance, his first miracle, turning the water into wine, Jesus had the servants fill up the casks with water. He had them draw it out and take it to the master of the house. He involved them in the miracle. His miracles involved a touch or a conversation or a journey. There was a moment of encounter, and then there was a relationship, a movement. In short, there was a process. And as Nazarenes, we proclaim that process is a huge part of the Christian life. We believe in what's described as a crisis moment, a couple of crisis moments, in fact. Now, crisis here isn't used the way that we normally use it in our language today. A crisis for us is usually a moment when everything is going wrong and we have to deal with it. But it came to mean that because crisis started out with a different meaning. It comes from the Greek word crisis, which starts with a K. Crisis with a K in its original sense, and even when it came into English, it just means decision. And that makes sense. A crisis, even in the way we use it, really does describe a moment when we have to make a decision or a series of decisions to deal with whatever is happening. So in theological terms, a crisis moment is the moment when you make a decision. And as I was saying, in the Church of the Nazarene, we believe in two distinct crisis moments, moments of decision. One is salvation. 
And that's the moment at which we confess our sins to God. We repent. We ask God for forgiveness. And in his gracious way, Jesus saves us. And I didn't use the word gracious there by accident. Salvation is something that only happens by virtue of God's grace in different forms. We can speak of prevenient grace. That word prevenient is one you won't hear much in everyday life, but it's not as difficult as it may sound. It can also be referred to as enabling grace or preceding grace. This is a grace that goes before, which is a concept that's prominent all through Scripture. God often speaks of going before us. As followers of Christ, we know this to be true. He prepares the way. We'll talk more about that in a little while, but it's so amazing to know that if you're here this morning and you haven't yet reached the point of salvation, God's prevenient, preceding, enabling grace is still at work all around you and even within you. My daughter Mackenzie, is, it's her birthday today. She's 19, so happy birthday, Mackenzie. And when she started working a couple of summers ago when she was still in high school, Mindy and I wouldn't know exactly when she would be arriving home. But once it was dark out, we made sure to turn the porch light on so that she knew we were expecting her and so she could easily make her way to the door and find the right key. That illuminated porch light is one of the images I have of this prevenient grace. Even before we make our way home, God is always bestowing this grace on us. It's what gives us the want to, to seek salvation. It's God clearing the path and lighting the way even when we are seemingly perfectly content to stay in the dark. It's God's prevenient grace that allows us to even see the path to seek Him and ask forgiveness. Prevenient grace is God leaving the lights on for us, even when we're far from home. And that moment when we do come home, when we are saved from our sins, well, that's what we describe as the first work of grace. But one of the uniquely distinguishing marks of the Church of the Nazarene, along with our closest theological relatives, and I'm always interested when I remember that one of our closest theological relatives is the Salvation Army and the Methodists and the Wesleyans, is that we believe in a second work of grace, and it's called sanctification. Now, some people immediately get a little scared, they get a little confused when we try to understand sanctification, but I've, I've grown to realize it's not as complicated as, as we want to make it. As Nazarenes, we believe that at the moment of salvation, the first major work of grace in our lives, God's grace begins another work. His grace begins to sanctify us. And that's another word you won't hear a lot outside of church circles, sanctify. Part of the word is obviously shared with the name of the room we're in today, the sanctuary, which is just a holy place. And that gives a clue to the word sanctify. It really just means to make holy. Maybe that makes it a little more scary for some of you, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to make us holy. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that process of being made holy, another of God's beloved processes, begins when we are saved. See, when we are living in sin, there ain't nothing holy about us. That's the point at which, as Isaiah put it, our righteousness, in other words, the best things about us, are still like filthy rags. We have no hope of being spiritually dressed appropriately to sit at the table of the king. But when we are saved, the Holy Spirit begins to clean us up, to redress us. And I want to make a little detour here. This is such a common misunderstanding. And it's one that we really hit a lot in Celebrate Recovery. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. That crisis moment can and should happen when you realize just how badly we've failed at cleaning ourselves up already. It's a losing effort. 
So if you haven't yet come to that point of decision of asking God to forgive you because you want to get things in order first, just give that up right now. Come just as you are. There's an old hymn that used to be sung at the altar call. We sang it in the, in the praise service this morning. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. And then there's, there's another verse that says, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. See, that is the promise of God. He will do the welcoming, the pardoning, the cleansing, if we just ask him, if we just come home. And then at some point, there comes a second crisis moment, and that's a moment of entire sanctification. And this is a term and a concept that's been widely misunderstood. And because it's been misunderstood, it's often been dismissed. There's another term for entire sanctification, and it's, it's a term that I don't like to use as much because I think it muddies the waters even further. It's Christian perfection. Now, let's be honest. When we hear the word perfect applied to any person other than Jesus, especially ourselves, it makes us uncomfortable. I know I'm not perfect. You know you're not perfect. So the idea of Christian perfection is difficult to deal with. But just like with the word crisis, it's because this, the meaning of the word perfect has changed. Today, we, we speak of perfect skin or perfect teeth or perfect score on a test without flaw, right in every way. And that's fine. We need a word that means that. But it obscures the original meaning of perfect, which is really, in essence, completely done, all in, 100%. So this second crisis moment, this moment of entire sanctification, this is a moment when we have the realization that not only do I want God to save me, but because of his sanctifying grace that's been working in me since the day I was saved, I want to surrender completely. He has forgiven me and saved me, but there's more to it. I want to give him my will, my plans, my life. The illustration I frequently use, I was talking to Greg about this, is a, um, a TV dinner spirituality where everything's separated apart in its own little compartments. And God says, I want it all. Just mush it all together and give it to me. See, this brings us back to the truth that God wants to make you and he wants to make me holy. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament says in chapter 11, consecrate yourselves and be holy for I am holy. And what does that entail? Well, that word, holy, in, in that verse, it's, it's a Hebrew word, kadash. And when we look at that word, it's usually translated as sanctified or separated. But there was a rabbi over 100 years ago, Rabbi Samson Hirsch, and he explained that his study shows that that root there means to prepare or to be at the very height of being absolutely ready for all that is good. So there we are back again at the idea of being all in. We get the sense of being absolutely prepared to follow when God says the word. And when we take it that way in the context of the verse, God's saying, be prepared, be all in. What does he add? For I, I, God, I'm all in. It becomes a covenant Truly the embodiment of the covenant that God and Abraham made. The same covenant that came into stark relief in the form of a God who became flesh and died on the cross. He was all in. 
no matter the cost, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, no matter the risk. I think this ties in really beautifully with Pastor Kent's sermon last week, something he said he was talking about at the burning bush, God told Moses what to call him, Jehovah. I am that I am, I will be what I will be, and that will be everything that you need. God was all in for Moses and all in for the people of Israel. And in his covenant with them, all he asked them was to be the same. Now, this is like me pooling all of my resources with all the resources of somebody like Elon Musk. Now, my total assets are probably less than a thousandth of a percent of his resources. So if he's willing to go all in with me on a project, why would I be afraid to go all in with him? How much more are the resources available to us with God? If God is willing to go all in, in covenant with us, with everything that he is, why should we be hesitant to go all in with him? This concept of being all in is entire sanctification at its heart, I believe. When I was 12 years old at the Oak Hill Church of the Nazarene, we had a series of revival services with the Reverend Bob Taylor. He preached a message titled Kindergarten Sanctification. He said, I want you to cup your hands in front of you. And he said, now that you've done that, mentally put everything in those hands. Your future plans, your desires, your goals, your past, your gifts, your challenges, your family, your relationships, your job, your finances, your possessions, your hurts, everything. And now turn your hands over and say, God, take it all. It's yours. That's entire sanctification. That's Christian perfection. That's being all in. That does not mean we won't ever make a mistake. It doesn't mean we won't ever be tempted again. It does mean that we are open to receiving the power of the Holy Spirit so we don't have to sin. We can be guided by him to be all in every day. That's how the process continues. Entire sanctification isn't an ending point. It's a point from which we begin to grow even further. Every day before our feet hit the floor, we must surrender it all again. And in that lifelong process of surrender, we become more and more like Christ. Now, the scripture for today is out of the book of Esther. So what does any of this have to do with a beauty queen from the Old Testament? Well, I think Esther's journey, her process, if you will, is a pretty good analog to our journey toward sanctification in a couple of interesting ways. And like every analogy, it breaks down at some point, but as we explore it, it still has a lot of value in helping us to see how this journey can happen. <clears throat> so before we read our scripture from Esther chapter 4, let's have a TV-style previously in the book of Esther moment. <clears throat> the book of Esther starts by describing a six-month-long party thrown by King Ahasuerus. He's now into his third year as king of the entire Persian Empire. This is about 50 years after the death of Daniel of Lion's Den fame. So we're talking four or 500 years B.C. Uh, as an aside, some translations of the Bible use the name Xerxes for Ahasuerus, which that name is based on the Persian language rather than the Hebrew language, but Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. So the six-month party is winding down, and the king orders his queen, Vashti, to come and greet his guests wearing nothing but her crown. I mean, come on, who does that, right? <clears throat> Vashti must have thought the same because she refused to do this totally inappropriate thing. And at the advice of his closest advisors, the king took away her royal status and banished her from the kingdom. Eventually, <clears throat> Ahasuerus realizes the whole thing was kind of a jerk move. 
He's lonely, but there's no way to undo what he's done. So his advisors, who've advised him well so far, now suggest the beauty pageant to end all beauty pageants. All the most beautiful women in the kingdom are invited from all the 127 provinces with the idea that the king will choose a new queen from among them. Now, right there in the capital city, there was a beautiful Jewish woman named Hadassah. And this is another case where there's a Hebrew name, Hadassah, and a Persian name, and the Persian name is Esther. Esther's parents are dead, and she's been raised by her uncle Mordecai. So at this time in history, the Jewish people are scattered around the ancient world, having been driven out of Israel. Mordecai is one of the leaders of the Jewish people in that area, and he may have even proven to have been a problem for the palace before. So when servants of the king came around rounding up all the beautiful women, and Esther has no choice but to go, Mordecai advises her not to reveal that she's Jewish. Since we wouldn't be talking about her otherwise, it might go without saying that after a 12-month process, Esther is chosen as the most beautiful and the most loved by the king. Esther 2.17 says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she carried charm and favor before him more than all the others, so he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Always worried about his beloved niece, Mordecai often hung around outside the palace gates so that he might get news about how Esther is doing. While he was there one day, Mordecai overheard two men plotting to, over, to murder the king. And here's your vocabulary moment. Did you know there's a special word for that? Regicide. <clears throat> it truly, regicide means to murder a royal figure. So having discovered the plot of these regicidal maniacs, Mordecai manages to get the news to Esther. She warns the king... The aspiring king killers are caught, and Esther rightfully gives the credit to Mordecai. So at some point, Ahasuerus chooses a new prime minister. His name is Haman. The king, perhaps at Haman's request, he seems like the kind of guy that would do this, orders that when Haman passes through the gate, everyone should bow and kneel. Mordecai, a man of deep principle, refuses to do it. There's an ancient Jewish commentary called the Midrash that adds the information that Haman wore a necklace with a big idol hanging from it, which may have been the main reason that Mordecai would not kneel. Anyway, Haman is not one to let things go. He's furious about this, and he knows Mordecai is Jewish, so he goes to the king and convinces him that the entire Jewish people within the kingdom are a problem. He asks for the king to get rid of them, and King Ahasuerus, never somebody with an abundance of backbone, he agrees. He makes a decree to all 127 provinces saying that on a certain date, the Jews in all the provinces are to be exterminated and their property will be kept as plunder. So that brings us to the start of Esther chapter 4. Esther is living in bliss in the palace with no idea about this edict the king has issued. You might still be wondering what this has to do with sanctification and the Christian journey. As I said, the analogy, especially thus far, hasn't been a perfect one, but it's still useful, and it's about to get a whole lot clearer. But so far, look at it this way. Just as there is a point before we know the Lord, while he is still paving the way for us, in the same way, Esther's life before the palace had prepared her for her entry into the beauty pageant. When her parents died, she could have been sent away, but instead her uncle Mordecai was able to take her in, and the way he raised her enabled her to remain strong once she was in the palace. And she remained right there in the capital city before that. So then came this first crisis moment. Esther was taken to the palace. So this was the decision point. How would she handle it? Would she follow Mordecai's advice? Would she make the right decision to not reveal who she was or where she came from? 
The pageant itself was a process of preparation as well. It's one she might not have chosen, but just the same, the process prepared her for the moment the king would choose his new queen. I think this is a pretty good analogy to our lives. After all, the processes we go through as we follow Christ, many times they are not processes we would choose. Pastor Kent spoke about this last week in a point that was so powerful. I want to reiterate that. He spoke of lamentation, the act of crying out, and how important it is to the life of a Christ follower. Those processes that lead us to lamentation are important to our spiritual formation. Early in my youth ministry career, I went through a year that was without a doubt one of the most horrible times of my life. The pastor I was serving under had a failure in a way that deeply affected my ministry and my life and my friendships, and it had the potential to affect my faith in God. And it did, but it was in a way that I'm forever grateful for. It was a crisis moment where I had to decide, will I run away from God or will I run toward him? And thankfully, due to the godly influence of my parents and my grandmother and other people who had poured into me and taught me right, people God used to prepare me for this crisis moment, I threw myself into the lap of God, and I ended up closer to him than ever. That process was not one I would have ever chosen to go through. But because it was my path, God used that process to draw me closer to him in a way that still has lasting effects today. And it was in my lament, my crying out to God, that I was drawn so close to him. Esther's process was like that. It was not one she would have chosen. No doubt she did a lot of lamenting, but the process had led her to where she was, in the palace. Esther hears that Mordecai is mourning outside the gates, and she sends a messenger named Hathak to find out what is happening. From Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 6. So Hathak went out to the city square and found Mordecai just outside the palace gates and heard the whole story from him and about the, in American money, about the $20 million Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave Hathak a copy of the king's decree, dooming all the Jews, and told him to show it to Esther and to tell her what was happening and that she should go to the king to plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Esther told Hathak to go back and say to Mordecai, All the world knows that anyone, whether man or woman, who goes into the king's inner court without his summons is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter, and the king has not called for me to come to him in more than a month. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. This was Mordecai's reply to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will arise from an, will, uh, will survive, sorry, but if you do not, then rescue for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai was speaking to Esther in the way that only a parental figure can. He was helping Esther to see the bigger picture. She needed someone to speak into her life to wake her up from her queenly complacence. Mordecai is sharing the wisdom of someone who has seen God working all his life. You know, one of the reasons I started looking at the book of Esther as a source this morning is because I didn't want to overlap on Pastor Kent's Names of God series. Esther is a safe choice because you know what the book of Esther calls God? It's a trick question. Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that don't mention God even once. The other one is the Song of Songs. 
There are a couple of translations that sort of put his name in there, but it's not in the original translation. Can we agree that there are times in our lives that are a lot like the book of Esther in that way? God is not calling to us from a burning bush. We can't see how he's speaking things into existence. He isn't signing his name with a giant paintbrush on the canvas of our circumstances. But his signature is still there in the details of the bigger picture. It's there in the subtle brushstrokes that form the faces of those he's placed around us to teach us and support us. And that's true here in the story of Esther. Because even though he isn't mentioned, God's fingerprints are all over Esther's life and Mordecai's life and the circumstances of this journey. God is constantly working behind the scenes, setting the stage for the next act. Some of you may know Reverend Jerry Bush. He used to pastor at the Oak Hill Church of the Nazarene. One time that church did a Christmas play where the first act and the second act had two different settings. The first act was in a beautiful living room. My dad was directing this play, and he had this idea that during the 10-minute intermission, while the curtains were drawn, the cast and crew would quietly completely change over the set. All the furniture would be removed, special panels on the wall would be folded over, new furniture would be brought in, and when the curtain was reopened, the audience would be totally surprised that the set was now a senior nursing home. And it worked. The first couple of nights, there were audible gasps when the curtain opened. How did they do that? And then one night, Pastor Bush, he was a, he's a great man, but he's also one who always says what's on his mind. He got up during intermission to invite people back to their seats, and he said, now while the curtains were closed, they've been changing the set over, so you're in for a surprise. <laughs> there was no gasp that night, and Dad was always really bothered by that. But the point is, maybe you find yourself in an intermission right now. The curtains are drawn. But guess what's happening behind that curtain? So get ready for a surprise because God is always working behind the scenes. And when the next act begins, he's got something great in store. It's time for us to take the stage in act two because God has prepared the way. This is Esther's act two. This is her crisis moment. Would she go into the presence of the king? Would she tell him about her Jewish heritage? Was she willing to give up everything, even potentially her life, to answer this calling? Will she be sanctified, set apart, made holy? Will she go all in? So after three days of prayer and fasting by all of her fellow Jews and with her own servants, Esther did go into the presence of the king. And after another fairly drawn-out process of a few fancy dinners, another plot against Mordecai, and more dramatic happenings, which are well worth reading if you haven't, Esther's plea to the king was successful. The Jewish people were saved, their enemies were destroyed, and Haman, the manipulator and the mastermind, was executed. Folks, the analogy to sanctification stands firm here in a lot of ways. It can be downright frightening to go all in. The truth is, we don't know what will happen. Taking a big leap when you can't see where your feet will land, that's intimidating. But the analogy breaks down in one major sense. Esther had no confidence in the one who sat behind those throne room doors. He was fickle, he was changeable, he was mercurial. But if you're standing inside the palace, outside the throne room doors today, wondering if you should go all in, let me tell you, the one who sits on that throne is never changing. And even better news, the king who has asked us to go all in is good. So our fear can be replaced with assurance and confidence and faith. God has never let us down. He has proven his faithfulness over and over again. 
He went all in through the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. He held nothing back. And for us, that second work of grace, sanctification, it is our all-in moment. In that crisis moment, that moment of decision about whether or not we'll go all in, Mordecai's question to Esther in chapter, 14, verse, chapter 4, verse 14, becomes the question we must all answer. Who knows but that you've come to this place for such a time as this? There are as many journeys in this place today as there are people. Your journey is different from mine. They've all been individualized and personal. Each journey has prepared us in some ways that we would not have chosen and many ways that we would have. God has used our journeys to equip us and fill our tool chests with things we can use in his power with his direction to make a difference in big ways and small. This is something I see frequently in Celebrate Recovery. We have a ministry called Grief Share that my my wife leads, and Mindy is uniquely qualified to lead that because of loss early in her life and a grief experience. In Celebrate Recovery, we see these people who are in leadership, and they have gone through the journey, and God has used their journey to bring them to this moment where they are now equipped to help other people. Esther's journey prepared her to speak directly to the king and save a whole nation if she would go all in. Your journey may have prepared you to speak a word of encouragement to someone at work. It may have prepared you to say yes to a missions trip. It may have prepared you to coach an upward team or serve on a city council or foster a child or fix a broken toilet. It may have prepared you to say yes to a life of full-time ministry. But if we don't say yes, if we don't go all in, then we will never get the opportunity to have God show us the fulfillment that comes when we put those tools to use. Like the book of Esther, your, your journey might seem filled with plot twists and reversals, complications and wacky characters and random coincidences you chalk up to chance. But there was a French author, Theophile Gautier, and he said, chance is perhaps the pseudonym of God when he does not want to sign. You are here in this place for a reason this morning. You are where you are in life because your journey has brought you there. And if you are ready to see the exciting things that happen when you go beyond salvation and you haven't yet sought to be sanctified through God's grace, today could be that day. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been saved, that's a vital decision to make, to undergo that first work of grace, to step into the palace. But Christians, this is really a message for us today. If you haven't sought that second work of grace, you may know that God's been working in you. You're living in the palace. You've been forgiven. You've confessed him as Savior. But he wants to be Lord, too. He wants to partner with you. He's all in, and all he's asking is for us to be all in, too. Step into the throne room with confidence in your heart, humility in your spirit, and a yes on your lips. Like that kindergarten sanctification message I mentioned earlier, God is calling us to let go of everything in our hands and put it in his hands, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is a crisis moment, a point of decision. There is a bigger picture, and God wants to show it to you. Go all in. Kyle and the band are going to come lead us in a song, and as they, as they begin to come, I want to lead us in prayer. I don't know where you are on your journey. Kyle, Kyle was talking about this in his prayer today. We don't, we don't know exactly what's going on with you. But what I know is that in a crowd this size, there are some who have not gone all in, who have not 
ask God, to, who've not said, God, take everything I am. As we pray, pray that prayer for yourself. Say yes, go all in. Dear Father, as we pray today, we come to you needing your presence. Lord, you're so faithful to meet with us. And Lord, as we come to you today, we do come to you with a yes on our lips. Lord, I don't know what each journey in this place is today. I don't know what they're dealing with, but I know that somebody here has a calling. Somebody here is in that Esther moment, standing outside the throne room. Lord, we can be so confident that you are good, that you're calling us into the throne room and there, there is no chance of it going wrong because you've called us there. We come to you, Lord. We want to go all in. Help us to be strong enough to say yes this morning. And all we do and say, we'll pray in your name. Well, welcome back. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the, listening to the message. It was a great message by Paul. I'm joined in the studio uh, with Greg Behaler. Hi, Greg. Hello, Pastor Chris. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm good. And Michael Lowe is our is is with us today. Michael, the uh, a local author uh, of the book Prayers in the Valley, actually a great book uh, about his daughter's experience with uh, MISC. Is that correct? That's correct. Hey, I got that right. That was awesome. Thank. Hey, how you doing, Michael? Doing pretty good. Glad to be here. That's awesome. Um, uh, we started out today because uh, Paul can't be with us because Paul preached the sermon. So I thought it would be a little awkward and odd if he commented on his own message, which, I mean, I, I would have been interested to hear what he had to say more, but, you mm-hmm. know, I, he left it to us today. So uh, we're the ones that are getting to getting to talk about this sermon. Um, and what was your thoughts, Greg, as we started talking about what's the what's kind of the thoughts you had about the what's happened with the sermon? Well, I, I really didn't know that uh, uh, John C. Calhoun had so many uh, <laughs> positions within our state government early the seventh uh, right. vice president of the united states uh, secretary of state a couple times so well you know that's, ne- that's this that's this week though right he was you know no that's no actually that was an error well <laughs> as we're talking about it let's make it mention that there were a couple errors in the sermon yeah. well not errors there were errors first of all paul didn't know i wasn't i'm preaching this sunday so i'm preaching and i'm not preaching on on calhoun I just thought he was ugly. I didn't know who that was. I guess I really wasn't paying attention, but he's an ugly man. Uh, but um, I will be preaching this Sunday, and it's not going to be on him. And then the second thing, which I thought was fascinating, and Paul later just let us know, not a correction, but just more information. Um, I thought the story about Vashti, Queen Vashti, um, was uh, was interesting. Just the idea that she, like he said, was asked to come before the king with nothing but her crown on. Um, and uh, I was, I don't remember that being in the passage of scripture. And then Paul informed me that that's actually a very common, uh, it was it was a common interpretation of that scripture because that is uh, a tradition or, or, or the, the, the understanding at that time. So, uh, so that was interesting. I never knew that. It was something I, did you know that? No, still, as Paul said, kind of a jerk move there, right? Who would, who would have their wife come out in front of all these people after six months of partying? So whether she had just a crown on or whatever on, right? It didn't seem like a very, very yes, nice that was not appropriate. Well, but after six months of partying, that that <laughs> that should be a hint right, right there. After six months of partying, you need, you know, yeah, yeah, don't expect the best decisions. 
<laughs> I have no comment. About he has that. no comment. He has no comment. Okay, let's get let's get down to it. So, um, what anything that kind of popped up in your mind that you because this this topic was definitely with Esther, but I thought it was a great vehicle because he really the majority of the sermon happened at the be- the points basically would happen at the beginning, and then he brings this analogy of Esther, which really helps be a vehicle for uh, the message of uh, thinking about sanctification. So, what what you anything thoughts you had, Greg? I, I think one of the things that I kind of underscored in rereading the sermon and thinking mm-hmm. about it was this idea of process and you know really process being a part of Christianity and uh, I guess I had not attributed process to to that and in the sense that you know even the miracles he talked about the miracle of of turning the water into wine that that was a process they had mm-hmm. to fill the pots full of water first and then so you know taking that notion of process and then applying it to um, sanctification and, and even salvation um, I just had not thought about process being a part of that. And so it made me think a little bit more about um, the process of being sanctified and what that means. And, and certainly that's been a word that, you know, throughout my walk uh, with Christ that has, um, in, like most Christians, maybe it's been a little bit confusing or, or maybe it's something scary. that you haven't understood. Well, did you, now, when you, Michael, when you grew up, what, I mean, you grew up in the church too. So, I mean, what, when I heard sanctification, what was your, what are your general thoughts about when you first hear the word? What was like, was you, did you see it as a process or a moment? It was, it was always sort of interpreted as a, a moment in time in which, you know, the, you know, like I think you were mentioning when we were kind of discussing this before, just this idea that, you know, you go to the altar and you're saved and yeah, you're yeah. sanctified. I remember that. I remember people I remember getting saved well. and sanctified at the exact same moment. Absolutely. And and so it was almost uh, paralleled the idea of being saved that at some point you would either it would either happen right when you were saved or you would come up later on to the altar and then that would happen and you know then that sure. would be complete. It was never presented like you were talking about, Greg, as a process. process. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, it was. Um, I think when I was a, a very young Christian, it was like I had miss something like mm-hmm. okay i'm saved but that's that's enough right and then this notion of sanctification and what that meant it was really hard to grasp as a new christian but i had a great analogy and one that stuck with me for um, i guess close to 30 years and, and actually kelly Estep shared this with me um, in a sunday school class and somehow we got on the topic of sanctification and, and i'm not sure i even knew what that was about or even what it meant then mm-hmm. uh, but she gave me this analogy and, and um, she said you know that when we are when we're not saved, that we have this rubber band that kind of goes around our waist and it goes around the world and the things of the world, and that that what draws us. So we're drawn to the things of of the world. Then when we're saved, we we take that rubber band and we take it and put it around Christ. So we have the rubber band around our waist, the world, and Christ. And so yes, we're drawn to Christ, but yes, we're also drawn to maybe some things of the world as well. And we're in this constant kind of uh, I don't know if you want to say battle, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, crisis as, as as pastor paul was talking about about you know which way are we going to go right and mm-hmm. then she mentioned that sanctification is when we take that rubber band that process of taking that rubber band off of the world and really just putting it solely on christ so it's us and christ in this rubber band and we're drawn to christ and i thought um that's been an analogy that i think has, has stuck with me um and i've thought about it many times in my christian walk and as i make decisions or how I want to live my life, I've thought about, you know, how am I being influenced? Are the things of the world influencing me to make the decision? Or am I am I seeking Christ first in my decision-making process or how to live? And um, that's been a clear, a really clear um, analogy for me when I think about sanctification. Sure, sure. You know, Paul even said, he said, you know, God loves 
process. I think that was one of the lines he used. And, you know, to me, that really speaks to this this idea that God is continually helping us to sort of move forward in our lives and get closer and closer to him. And, you know, I, I think about the idea of getting closer to God, but it's not something where, like, I guess, you know, you can feel like you're walking right beside Christ. You know, sometimes in your life you feel very close to him and other times, you know, you feel really distant. Um, But it's never something that is like in a lot of ways. I mean, to some ways it is, but it's never something that's completely attainable in the sense that, you know, I I remember, you know, a couple of years ago or whatever else, you know, I, I was a rather arrogant person. And I felt like I had everything figured out when it came to this whole uh, Christianity thing, you know. And uh, you know, there's been some pretty serious humbling in my life. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that. And, you know, but the idea there was is, you know, I have in, in my own mind and in my own heart become much closer to Christ in the last, you know, two or three years than what I ever felt like I would have been, you know, five or six years ago. And five or six years ago, I felt like I had it all figured out. And so even when you think you have it all figured out and you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm totally, completely and utterly, you know, have given my life to Christ and and these sort of things, there's still room for you to get even closer to him, become more like Jesus. And it's it's something that in my mind we can always improve upon and that Christ can always open up new areas and thoughts in our life to bring us closer to him. And so that's like what you're talking about there. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I, I know that I'm making decisions daily, right, to, to follow him. It's, it's yeah. you know, uh, Christ is always revealing n- new things to me, whether it's an attitude or a spirit that maybe that it's, I need to, to give to him. And so I think that that process for me is still an ongoing process, daily mm-hmm. choosing to, to walk with sure. Christ and have him, the Holy huh. Spirit, which is there to make us like him and holy and holy like he is holy. And, uh, you know, that's a... Uh, it's the process, for well, sure. I think that it goes back to his definition of perfection, you know, that we think of perfection a lot right. of times as something that is perfect. But, you know, the reality is, is that it also goes to our definition of what we consider um, sin to be. So mm, we had talked yeah. about this earlier, is that if you, if you really go with a Calvinistic definition of sin, you know, the idea that, that perfection is Perfection is something that has no flaw. And so if I sin in word, thought, and deed every single day, perfection is never attainable. Yeah. Right? But if in when we think about Wesley's definition, which is a willful transgression against a known law of God, can I possibly get to the point in a moment where I choose not to willfully transgress God's law? And that's what you're saying. Yeah. You're saying there's moments I wake up and I think to myself, God, what new area do you want to work on today? But that's presupposing the idea that you were able to wake up and have given what you can to God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really sanctification is this idea that I no longer am holding on to stuff that I'm waking up every day and saying, God, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I'm going, there's going to be areas in my life you know, work on today. I'm not perfect. But God, what you want to do, everything that is in me, I want to be yours. You it's understand? Like having that posture of heart. Sure. It's that idea that, you know, and I was telling you guys, but just the idea of when I was in college, I remember my moment of sanctification, that moment for me, really, when I felt like I was entirely sanctified, if that's how I wanted to find this entire sanctification was I had been in a process of allowing God to work in my life, except for the area of my vocation. Mm-hmm. And I'd gotten saved and God was working on me. And I'm like, God, I just don't want to be, I didn't want to be a missionary. Honestly, I was a missionary kid and I just didn't want God to call me into ministry. And I, I knew this where God wanted me. I knew that's the area he wanted to work on me on. 
but I chose not to allow him to have that, yeah. you know? And so it, once I gave God that and said, God, everything is yours, every, no area in my house is going to be not uh, off, off limits to you. Then I felt like I was truly sanctified. It's almost like this idea that God, I'm not perfect. I'm going to continue to have areas of my life that need worked on. But when you bring them up, they're not going to sit there. I'm going to choose to work. Yeah, I, I really liked um, this sermon really um, I defined a couple of words for me differently than I had thought of them. So the word crisis, you know, that yeah, just seems to be here on fire yeah. as opposed to just a decision. Right. Yeah, so, know, yeah. you know, I like that because, you know, that tames that word a little bit. Sure. Crisis is really a, about a time of decision. Sure. And the second word was um, perfect and perfect being um, thought of as not without um, imperfections, but 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 completely done or all in. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so sure. when you speak to that, you know, if God, if I wake up in the morning and, and Christ, the Holy Spirit reveals to me, you know, then uh, yes, I can be all in. I can choose to be all in. Sure. It's a crisis moment, right? Sure. I get to say, okay, this is decision time and I'm either going to choose, you know, yes or no, but I'm going to, and I'm going to choose all in, right? I'm going to choose to say, okay, you've revealed this to me, help me, right? Show me what, what I need to change sure. in order to be to be more like you, and I, I think sometimes, um, you know, it is in the nuance of those words. You know, that sometimes when we think about, you know, if I think about being perfect, I mean, that's deflating almost because <laughs> I just know me, <laughs> right? And I just yeah. go, wow, that's that's just not, not that's not something I can even aspire to be, but I can aspire to be all in. Yes, yeah. sure. And I sure. can aspire to say, okay, I can push away from this, and I can. I can repent and turn and go the other direction. I can't do that sure. with the help of the Holy Spirit. But, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, all of this is done. All of this is not our journey. Mm. It's God in us, working in yeah, us, absolutely. moving with us. It's not us doing it. It's us It's us be allowing God to work in us and, and, and through us. So. I mean, my ability to do this is, is not great. No. <laughs> that is, yes. Well, yeah. I think we can probably all look back to, you know, points in our life where, People will say to, to us, maybe, how'd you get through that? How'd mm -hmm. you do that? Yeah. I could have never done that. And we may have even had those thoughts about other people, too. I mean, I know I have. Like, how in the world did they get through that? And we know. Yeah. Um, it's it's because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of Christ in us that we're able to, he's enough, and we're able to, his grace, his mercy is able to pull us through those things. And No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, and I when I think about my own life and experience as I grow, as I grow older, I mean, you realize that that becomes easier as you grow, as he works on you, the process of, it's almost like a, it's almost like a habit. So if I have a, if I start off by saying all in and I continue to do that mm -hmm. and probably longer than 30 days, but I think it was 30 days of habit. Is that what they say? 30, if you do the habit, some of the 30 <laughs> like days, it becomes a habit. Days. Anyway, 30 days sounds like a good number. Sure. Um, but this idea that the more you are all in, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. Not that. Not that the actual moment of change is easier, but the idea that I know that I've been all in and this has worked in by experience happened before. So it becomes and, and Michael, we were talking about just the idea that sometimes I've got to remember that, yeah. that my my area, my process is yeah. not going to be the same as somebody else's process. I'm not saying the same the journey. Yeah, I mean, I think we were even talking about that earlier, the idea that, you know, a lot of times it's easy for uh people who've been Christians for a while to look back at someone who's, you know, just starting the journey and to sort of expect them to be, you know, where you are or sure. expect them to have that same sort of perspective uh, in their Christian life. And, and to a lot of ways, we need to have more grace for people 
and allow them to go through the process themselves. Sure. Um, and sometimes that's not easy for us. Well, I think we come from, if we do say we come from a history where we kind of have used that word as an instantaneous moment more than a process. Mm-hmm. I always, my dad always used to say that it was both a moment and a process. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a true statement, but I think yeah. in the church, sometimes we've hinged on that moment. So if we choose to hinge on that moment, then it is awfully hard for us then to see somebody who is not at the same spot we are. Because mm-hmm. right. if they've been sanctified and I've been sanctified and it's a moment, then you have the same expectations that I was have. And I just don't think that's, I I think it has to be seen as this moment in process. And I think for the most part, um, it's, we can, we do that. We can do that, but it is, it is something you just got to look at somebody and go, it's not, you know, maybe they're not on the same, in the same spot as, as I was. And maybe that should encourage us to encourage them. I mean, you know, really, I mean. Well, I'm glad that we have, you know, in, in the course of our uh, ministry here at our church, that we discuss these sort of things. This isn't just something you know that's kind of in the background or whatever. This is something that we kind of put out there uh, through a lot of our different sermons and things over the course of the years where we discuss these ideas so that it becomes part of our vernacular. It becomes part of who we are as not only as individuals, but as a congregation. Mm-hmm. And that you know, as we're teaching and we're preaching and doing these sort of things, that people start to understand that in a much more common way. And it becomes something that you know, when you come into our church, you start hearing these type of words and you start understanding sure. these things a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's 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 something that always attracted me. And kudos to Paul. Mm-hmm. In yeah. Esther into. <laughs> I told him. I said, I said I didn't know where he was going with that, but it, it, the vehicle worked very well. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that... her story is is as much a process as anything. I mean, really. Sure. Um, her life leading up to you know where she was at the moment of this crisis was a sure. process that prepared her for for that. And it's a very interesting story. One I probably hadn't. Uh, given a whole lot of thought to until this sermon. So really, well, it's and I think it's great. We don't I, as much as I. I don't think we spend enough time um, on the idea of what does life look like after salvation. You know, what yeah. does this Christian life? What does it look like? What are the the milestones or the things that should be going on in your thinking as you're, as you're living this Christian life? And I I do think. Um, it, sometimes when we discuss it, we discuss it with words or vernacular that yeah. just is hard to get our minds around mm-hmm. or has a lot of baggage to it. I mean, yeah. you know, has a lot of baggage to it. And I thought Paul did a great job of helping explain that to, to, to a person that might not understand, um, not understand the words and the terminology. I thought it was just, I thought it was good because we need to, we, we can't shy away from it. Yeah. So we can't say we're not going to talk about entire sanctification, sanctification because it's hard to understand or because people won't get the wording. We, the process is still the same. We need to, we need to discuss the process. It's right. not like, it's not like, cause we can't use entire sanctification anymore than suddenly it doesn't exist. It is still happening in people's lives. We just need to figure out how to help people understand and relate to that process that they're feeling. I'm going to be honest. The last time that I dealt with Esther was through Veggie Tales. Mm. So, you know, it's been um, a while. I don't just, remember that one. What did they do with Esther? Did you tell the story? They tell the story of Esther, okay. but it's Veggie Tales. Was Vashti in there? <laughs> no, not oh, okay, well, okay. I don't know that the I don't, I don't know that the, uh, the cucumbers wear clothes anyway. But um, <laughs> just saying that, that sorry, was sorry. I should have left that. I should have left that thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a youth pastor in me. Okay, okay. the old youth pastor in me. Yeah. Uh, anything else, guys? I mean, I think we're kind of. I think it's, it was it was a great sermon, and you did a great yeah. job with it. Anything else we can think? Practically, before we kind of wrap up, I know he'd mentioned there just just briefly that idea of uh, progress through miracles. 
I know you had, you had talked about that briefly as well. The idea that those things aren't necessarily, it's not always lightning from the sky, but, you know, oftentimes it's, and I thought about this when I was just reading through the, the sermon again, the idea that, like, a lot of times our miracles, um, you know, we expect these flashy things that happen instantaneously, but a lot of times it's, you know, it was a, the miracle that that doctor was able to get through medical school the way that they did and uh, were able to pay for that and get into the hospital exactly when they needed it to happen and, and be there there and be the hands, you know, if you will, sure. of Christ. Sure. Um, and, you know, and that's a miracle within itself. But oftentimes we don't think of that as a miracle in the sense that it isn't, you know, the water into wine sort of moment. Um, but, you know, it's still a miracle. It's still Christ working in people's lives mm. to bring about his glory. And that's a process. That's not something that often just happens yeah. the snap of a finger. But I, I felt like that was also kind of something he touched on in the sermon there that was was kind of cool that I had, I had never really thought of directly as being a process but that idea of process of miracles yeah yeah and i think the other the other thread that kind of runs to this for me is just the sense of obedience is part of this right so being all in is yeah you know requires obedience sure. on our part and so it's more than just an ideal yeah it's more than just you know i'm going to be all it, it really requires um obedience on our part and certainly i think that's we get that from Esther's story. I mean, she had to she had to make a difficult decision. I mean, yeah. She's entering the king's room with the notion that, you know, she might not make it out alive. Um, but, you know, her obedience to that and to her people and, you know, she she's able to go in there and have this conversation and change the mind. And so it's just, again, I think it underscores for me just the importance of uh, obedience uh, is a part of this journey to sanctification, right? We have to be willing to... And, you know, he even, uh, I think Paul even pointed out the fact that, you know, our situation, no matter what it is, is probably going to be easier than Esther's in the fact that, you know, uh, Christ is, <laughs> he's not waiting in there to get us. You know what I mean? It's, it's you know, he's waiting in there for our good. Yeah, that's a great point. And we know that yeah, before yeah, we ever walk yeah. in through the door. Sure. She was walking sure. into something that the she was unsure of. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have to, we know. You don't have to be we unsure. We know the character yeah. of our God and. And, yeah, and that makes that um, kind of fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Well, I, hey, it was a great sermon. Really enjoyed it, um, and I really, uh, really just brought. We need to hear it. We need to hear it probably mm-hmm. in several different ways and several different forms. And this is a great form to do it in. Uh, well, guys, uh, we've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Uh, you know, we'll see what this week holds. I don't know. I don't, I don't know about the speaker this week. Maybe, a little, maybe <laughs> it's a questionable. It is questionable. Guy. It is a questionable. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. So, hey, until next week, uh, you guys have a great, uh, great week. And, and thinking about this and praying about that. And really, hopefully for you, um, if you've not really made that decision to go all in if you've not made that maybe you'd ask christ in your heart but there's areas of your life that you know you're just not god is speaking to you about and you've not gone all in i pray that you do that i mean i I think speaking from the three gentlemen in this room um all of us have our personal stories that we can bring to this where god has got us to that point um and we've made that decision and uh, we can all test that it is definitely uh, the best decision that can be made uh, to decide to go all in Uh, like michael said it's you know um sometimes that can be scary before where you take that step through the door, but you, it's the, really the testimony of the people around you that have done that already and realize that God is good. He's not... Even in he, the tough times. That's right. He is good, and he is looking to to uh, really build you and, and uh, encourage you. So, hey, guys, I appreciate you guys being here tonight, and, uh, and uh, hopefully have a great week. Have a good week, sir.